Dale. So as I said at the beginning of our worship service that we are starting a new series today called Simple Rules. And we're going to look at the Wesleyan tradition and what John Wesley promoted as some simple rules for Christians to adopt and to live by in our communities of faith and how we are in the world. That we simply should be a people who do no harm, seek to do only good, and that we are commanded to stay in love with God. What that would look like in our own lives, in our homes, and how it might impact the world around us. I think we all know that we live in a world that is fraught with division and strife. Can I get an amen on that one, right? right. I think our inauguration of our current president probably is a good example of the evidence of how much division we actually have in our culture today. Now, one of the concerns that I I would lift up for you is is that so often we respond with the norms of our society and our world to things like this. If someone offends me, then my choice is to exact my pound of flesh on them. We are in a retributive society. We go back after the one who has offended us in so many ways. We do harm to those who harm us. I think most of us also know that this isn't going to sustain us as a society and as a species. That there's got to be a different way for us to live together. A a way that promotes unity and harmony of all things, not retribution for being harmed. A, A community of people who go out and seek to intentionally do no harm in the world as our example. Most of you know that I spent a couple of weeks in Washington, D.C. here uh, early this month, and I was finishing up my last two classes for my doctorate program. Yes. Now, somebody came in this morning and said, well, good good morning, Dr. Hoffman. And I said, oh, no, I still got another year and a half. There's a big project part of this piece that still has to be done for me to finish all of it. But I finished at least the coursework. Yay, thank God. But during the, the, the week that I, two weeks that I was out there, Margaret came out in the middle of it to spend the weekend with me. And then she flew on to Atlanta for a meeting. So we took the opportunity to see some of the things in D.C. that you want to see while you are there. And in particular, we had targeted two museums that we wanted to go through. One of them was the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. We went there on Saturday, and and we had been there before, but the last time we were there, we had like a two-hour window. It was a really short, compressed amount of time, and, and honestly, you don't do justice to the museum if you try to get through it in two hours. It it takes four, five hours to walk through that museum, to be able to read every inscription, to watch all of the short little clips and the videos, and to to get the full effect of the, the moment in time and history, and to be able to watch that, to get a chance to see the magnitude of human hate at a period of time in our world, to see how nationalism can be whipped up into a fervor based upon an economic understanding and depression and to use that as a a way to say that one race was the problem for them. And then as a nation to condone the extermination of that race and to programmatically participate in it. 
It's a powerful museum to walk through and to remind you of our human propensity to demonize and devalue one another. To literally take one another's breath and life. To do that kind of harm. The the next day, on on, uh, Sunday, we decided to go to the newest museum in Washington, D.C. It's the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It was, a, it was a pretty interesting day on Sunday in Washington, D.C. It was about 14 degrees with a 40-mile-an-hour wind. It was a beautiful sunny day in Washington, D.C., right? And, and when you park in, in D.C., you usually park along either Constitution Avenue or Pennsylvania, down near the mall and, and the parkland area, and then you kind of have to walk over to the museums. And it was about a quarter of a mile walk to the museum from where we had parked our rental car. We got to the doors, walked through the little, the little line thing that they had, and got up to the security person, and the security person says, can I see your pass, please? Uh, what pass? Right? I didn't know you had to have a pass. Evidently, the way the museum's designed right now, you have to have a time to pass to be able to get into that museum because there are so many people that want to come and see it. And oh, by the way, the passes are given out all the way to like April, right? So we were not going to get in according to the guard. Remember I said it was 14 degrees out, 40 mile an hour wind. We'd walked a quarter of a mile. Needless to say, Jim was in deep trouble at the moment. My wife, she's saying, you know, what are we going to do now? I don't know. I don't have a plan B for this moment. But all of a sudden, a couple people came in the line behind us, and they said, you know what? We've got a couple of extra passes that we're not going to use today. And the security guard goes, go on in. So we got to go into the museum. We got to walk around and and see the significance of a a six-story structure. There's three below ground a plaza area, and then a couple of more levels up above ground. And to walk through the, the historical aspects of what has gone on with a certain part of our society and their history starts in the 1400s at the very basement. It begins with the very beginning of African slavery and what transpires in their history. And it's, it's amazing to be reminded that this went on long before it ever came to the colony. That in the 1400s, the warring African tribes would keep the lands and the possessions of the people that they conquered, but they'd move all the people off to the west coast of Africa. The Portuguese got wind of this, saw this as an opportunity, and began the slave trade in the 1400s, moving them from the west coast of Africa into Central America and South America. And thus began the slave trade. It was a a partnership between the ruling class of Africa and the Portuguese. A hundred some odd years later, the American colonies get in on this. And we began the trade of humans and the trafficking in humans for the sheer purpose of economic prosperity. To use the labor of other people so that we might gain and become rich. And that's what started our journey of harming other people intentionally using them for that purpose. When you think about stories like this, it's so easy to think about harm as something that is outside of our realm and who we are. It's so easy to look at the things that are beyond us and say that that's harm that's going on in the world. But I want you to think about your own circumstances, your own homes, the places where you find yourself each and every day. What kind of harm do you see going on in the world around you? 
maybe what you should ask is, what kind of harm do you see yourself a part of? We know what happens in our homes. We know what happens in some of our professional lives. We know what happens in our society. And yet we also know that we as a people cannot turn a blind eye to this because when you do and you sit in silence, you still give permission. We can't simply say that it's something that I didn't start, I'm not involved in. We can't say that I didn't cause the situation so I have no burden. We all have a burden when it comes to the harm that is done in our local communities, our homes, in the world that is around us. Is it any wonder that in today's society we have people who are in economic and social disparities who are crying out for justice? Is it any wonder that people are speaking out, acting for change? I think we all, each and every one of us, we have to be sensitive realists to know that in some form or fashion we participate in the ways in which others are harmed in the world around us. If you live, you breathe, you walk out your front door, this is an undeniable fact for us. And yet this is not the world that God has in mind. And this is not what God has in mind for us as a community of faith. There is a better way for us, a different way for us to live. When you think about the writings of Paul, and in particular this one, the, the biblical scholars remind us that, that Paul was in constant communication with this church in Corinth. They were writing back and forth to one another, and he found circumstances and situations going on in this church that were commendable, but many that were not in his mind and his understanding. And even though this is called the first letter of Corinth, to the Corinthians, we, we actually know it's his second letter because he refers to a previous letter in this. And so he has had some knowledge and some understanding of what's going on in this church and can write with the authority that he has to charge them with a better way of living. In this part of the conversation, he's talking about how a community gathers together for a meal and then celebrates the Lord's Supper. <coughs> As part of their church, they would have like a first feast. You all know what first feast is, right, many of you? You've been to one of our first feasts. They come together as a community and would have a feast, and at the end of that feast, they would serve communion. But what Paul found out is as they had subverted this with their Roman norms, their cultural norms, the elites, the upper class members of the church would come first to the meal, and they would eat. They would eat so much. And then it would go down the social structures and those who were next would come and they would eat some of what was left over. And eventually to the point that when they got to the lowest class members of the church, they would show up and there was nothing left for them to eat in the community meal. And then they'd all gather around and have communion together, the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, what kind of example are you sharing with the world around you in this? The activity that's supposed to unite you, make you one with Christ, one with each other, one with the world, is being subverted by your practice of sharing a meal the way that you do. Because in your meal, you're doing harm. You're doing harm to one another as a church. You're doing harm to your witness to the world. So Paul attempts to try to restructure their understanding and how they gather together as a community so that they might purposefully do no harm to one another and have a witness in a world that is to the same effect. 
I think the church of Jesus Christ today is called by God to be a people who examine how we practice our faith, how we live it as a community, but also how we live it in the world because it's important. Our witness to the world is important. People are watching you. They're watching me to see what kind of example we are of the Christ that we claim to follow. Is change happening in us? Or are we participating in the structures as all the rest of the world does? John Wesley, in his simple articulation of these three rules, had an idea in mind what it might look like for us as a people whose living together changes the world around us. In the mid-1700s, Wesley established what was called the United Societies in England and later in America. They were class meetings, and each class meeting had a leader, and the leader would examine each member and ask a basic question, are you living a blameless life? Are you really doing no harm in the world around you? And, and when, he, when he said that, you know, Wesley had some particular things in mind as some general practices. So they would ask him questions like, have you taken God's name in vain this week? Have you kept the Sabbath or have you worked on your Sabbath day? Have you given over to drunkenness? Are you treating other persons as indentured servants of yours? Has there been fighting, quarreling, brawling, brother against brother, sister against sister? Have you returned evil for evil, railing for railing? Have you bought and sold goods that you did not pay the taxes on? Are you charging one another insane amounts of interest on money that you have lent? Have you given yourselves over to uncharitable or unprofitable conversation? Have you spoken evil against your civic leaders or your minister? I really like that part of it, right? The minister aspect of it, right? Have you violated the golden rule? Are you doing what you know is against God's command? Are you a person who is mostly given in to the treasures of this world and you're worried about building that up? Have you borrowed money or have you bought something that you cannot pay for? Well, we ought to ask that question more often, right? The number of people who find themselves significantly in debt in our society. Now, this isn't Wesley's complete list, but I think you really kind of get the gist of what he is searching people out for and asking them to consider what are the ways in which we, as God's people, inhabit harm in our own lives and how does it spill out into the world around us? Because even for Wesley, he thought of a better day, a better way of living, and how we as a community could do that. Most of you know that last Monday was what? Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. We celebrated that last Monday. In one of his speeches that he gave, Martin Luther King reminded the community then, the the people that he was speaking to then, of all the advances that had taken place in the early 60s and all that we had seen that technologically was beginning to burgeon around us and the, the great things that were transpiring. But he also reminded us that we as a people in this country still ate separately, worshipped separately, and died separately. At the end of that speech, though, he closed with these words, We shall overcome. We shall overcome. That in faith through Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, the church of Jesus Christ can overcome. 
We can be a people who seek to do no harm in the world and live that out not only in how we interact one with another, but how we interact with our neighbors and the world beyond. To be a people who overcome evil, injustice, and oppression in every single form that we see it by seeking to do no harm. Bishop Reuben Job, who wrote a book on these three simple little rules, says in this that for us as individuals to live this out in our daily practice, there's two things that we must do. The first is is that we must intentionally examine our practice of our faith. Each and every day we should intentionally look at how we are going to practice our faith that day. Will we do no harm? And in the moments where we find ourselves doing that, violating it, to seek forgiveness and to ask God to transform that area of our life. But the second aspect of it is just important. He said what we need to do is learn to see others as a child of God. How often we see them simply as a tool or an object, an obstacle or something that we can use. And we treat one another in that way when realistically we should see one another as a child of God, loved by God, and as such, not to seek harm for them but only good. Because in many ways, dear friends, I think this is exactly what God has in mind for us. That God has a purpose for the church to model what it means to live a different way, especially in this world where it's tearing itself apart. How do we participate in ways in which stop the cycles around us? To bring about God's picture of a world that is at peace and unity, harmony with God and creation and one another. Because that's God's ultimate plan, to bring that kingdom of perfect peace and love and life to this world. God has a place for you and me in it then, but God has a place for you and I now to be a people who are enacting that, bringing about that kingdom by doing no harm. I would say to you, dear friends, that we, the people of God who follow Jesus Christ, are called to break the cycles in our world. Break the cycles that are systemic. They are personal. They are interpersonal. They harm one another. They permeate our homes, our schools, our institutions, sometimes our houses of worship. But we as a people of God are called to adopt a new way of being, to practice what it means to do no harm in our everyday world, our everyday existence. Because I believe that all of us want to see change in the world around us. So the question I would ask you, what are you doing to follow the simple rule of do no harm? Here's what I hope you take away this morning, a couple of points that maybe you can remember, converse about, think about, and pray over yourself. To be reminded that we do live in a world that continues to perpetuate harm of others. It's become our our norm. It's in our homes, our workplaces, our cities, our societies. God is inviting each and every one of us, this Christian community, individuals who follow Christ, to be a people who change the world and to do so by intentionally seeking to do no harm in the world in which we inhabit. And that when we follow this, we can be a people who demonstrate to the world that there is a better way to live together. But it's going to be bold. It's going to require us to be bold to do so. So here's your invitation this morning for you to consider. First, maybe ask yourself this question. 
What in my life needs to change? What are the practices in my life that I know, if I really looked at them, are harming those that are, are around me? Maybe it's an attitude, word, action. What needs to change? And how can I invite God in today to change those things about me? To reveal a new way through the living spirit of how I can be a person who can seek every day to do no harm. Or maybe to can look at it this way as, as your construct is, how do you view others in the world around you? Do you carry the cynical view of the world, of others? Do you keep others at a distance? Do you see them as tools and objects? Or do you see those that are right across the street from you, who sit next to you at work, who drive next to you? Do you see them as children of God? The invitation, I believe, is to change our view of the other, to see them as one of God's children, to change our responses so that we can be a people who seek do no harm. And so, may this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, the one who saw every single one of us as brother and sister, who did not choose to condemn us, but rather sacrificed himself for us. The Christ who did no harm, but rather healed and welcomed. May we sacrifice our lives in ways that will bring healing to our world. We'll welcome others and will truly do no harm. Would you pray with me? So God of grace and mercy, we come before you in this moment. We ask that you might search us, O God, and know our hearts, know our works. The areas where we know that we have done harm to others, we confess that, O God. We seek your forgiveness. We ask that you teach us a better way through your spirit so that we might truly live out this kind of principle that can change the world. But in the areas where we have blind spots, we ask, O God, that your spirit might touch us, prick our hearts, our minds. Show us those areas. Reveal them to us so that we might be transformed by the power of your love by the power of your Spirit, that we might go forth from this day intentionally seeking to do no harm in the world around us, living the way that you desire for us to live. And so all these things we pray in the powerful name of your Son, who is our Lord and Savior, and in the Holy Spirit, O God.